For writer Jessica Barron, art criticism increasingly feels connected to civil rights and issues of equity. Part of this was a, a lot of soul-seeking myself, um, having worked at, again, at Fort Gondo and um, thought about this whole idea of um, nonprofit alternative art spaces as being so much about giving um, quote-unquote marginalized vo voices exposure, um, which at one point I think felt like a positive thing to do or helpful thing to do. And then you really have to then look and think, I, I, you know, maybe this is not supposed to be me, uh, you know, maybe actually it's about who the leadership and, and who the curator should be. And, um, and I, I think that it's something that is very much on people's minds right now. I'm Sarah Fetsky. St. Louis on the Air continues right after this. I'm Laura Hamden, producer for St. Louis on the Air. Before today's episode, I want to take a moment to say thank you for listening. Our team works hard to provide nuance on the news that shapes your life and your community. We wouldn't be able to do this without your support. The money you give to St. Louis Public Radio helps fund our podcast. Please go to stlpr.org donate and give an amount that works for you. Your contribution along with that of your neighbors is what fuels St. Louis on the air. We're really grateful. Thank you for your support. Jessica Barron recently got some terrific news. The St. Louis-based arts writer and critic was awarded an Andy Warhol Arts Writers Grant. The $30,000 award seeks to support her short-form writing and, quote, ensure that critical writing remains a valued mode of engaging the visual arts. And she joins us today to talk about it. Jessica Barron, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. So first, congratulations on this award. I mean, that's a good amount of money, but does it also feel like it's some tangible proof that this work that you're doing matters? It does. No, that's an excellent point. Um, yeah, I think that the argument for both recognizing the value of St. Louis art and St. Louis criticism or say, or regionally based criticism has been a difficult one over the years. And um it really is incredibly meaningful to uh, receive this as, as, like you said, a form of validation, as well as financial support. <laughs> That's very important. We don't want to undersell that. But <laughs> So you cover the art scene here, and, and you have bylines that have appeared in some of the most prestigious arts pu publications in the entire country. Are they generally interested in what's happening in the Midwest? I think that's um, also been something that's been a long arc. Um, I, you know, there have been certainly critics out of St. Louis who have written national and uh, international criticism over the years. And um, there are certainly people that I even read in advance of trying to attempt to do this. Um, but I think with any regularity, no. Um, and I, I do feel fortunate that um, I guess it's felt like um a kind of gaining of trust over the years where they have become increasingly more interested in understanding the value of representing this area of the country and also um, the artists and uh, exhibitions that are based here. So your work has covered both what the museums here are doing as well as some of the more experimental stuff, the stuff happening down on Cherokee Street and some of our alternative art spaces. Which part of the scene are the national publications more interested in at this point? That's a really good question. I, I think that has also shifted. I mean, I, I think at this point, um, it, 
Well, let's just say initially, the rubric for a lot of those publications is to really focus on established artists. And I I think that's always something that um, it's kind of nice to have the platform to explain because, you know, folks always want to know how they can um, get reviewed, of course, which I, Mm -hmm. I greatly sympathize with. And, you know, it's often out of the critics' hands to a large extent. You know, it's this process of pitching and hopefully making it interesting to the publication and then the publication itself having its own, um, you know, ideas and perspectives and voice. So um, initially it, it, it really was predominantly the, you know, St. Louis Art Museum, CAM, the Pulitzer. Um, but increasingly, I think um, both as a result of a, a, a more, I would say even an international trend, quite frankly, where alternative art spaces have, um, been identified as increasingly more vital to the art scene. Um, but also here, um, the fact that uh, within our own ecology, um, these sort of smaller spaces, um, non-commercial spaces have become a, clearly identified as uh, uh, very important to uh, not only nurturing, but um, showcasing some of the most exciting and interesting art. So you think there's maybe a greater appreciation um, within the city that there's some really exciting things happening in these edgier spaces? I do. I do. And I again, I, I, I'd say that even over the time that I've been in St. Louis, I, I came, I went to grad school here between 2006 and 2008. I briefly went back to New York and then I, I came back. Um, I'm sorry. I went to school between 2004 and 2006. Time has eluded me. <laughs> Why I'm even mentioning these specific dates, I have no idea. But anyway, <laughs> more to the point here. Less about how old I am. Um, I when I came back, I feel like I I sort of lived through this um, this shift, uh, so to say, in 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 the art scene where. Um, there was, I think, a more um, like a, a stratified scene between what was considered serious art in St. Louis and relegated to the institutions and for-profit galleries, and then what was considered sort of fringy or scruffy, and um, those were more artist-run spaces and and potentially more kind of provisional um, iterations of businesses or non-businesses or just simply uh, uh, kind of initiatives on the part of artists. And and what do you think changed in that time? That's a good point. I mean, I think that, again, I I think that there, um, I think increasingly artists um, gained a voice in identifying the fact that uh, they themselves were doing better work um, outside of institutional parameters. Um, but I think if you accelerate, though, to more recently, um, I mean, I, I think that things then went into warp speed in this dynamic post Mike Brown. I, I think that the whole, um, especially St. Louis gaining national recognition, but also artists here feeling really galvanized by the movement that emerged from that moment, um, that also largely took place in the streets and was about popular activism. Um I think gave enormous amounts of um, uh, kind of redistributed attention to artwork that was happening outside of the confines of institutions. And and again, I, I think that that had been a momentum that had been occurring for a while, but um, not nearly with the kind of velocity and also just um, I, I just sheer importance, I think, as, hmm. as that. 
So so you did a great piece for Art Forum last year, and this dealt with the counter-public exhibition at the Luminary. That's a, a space down on Cherokee that does a lot of amazing work. And, and overall, mm-hmm. you had a lot of good things to say about this. But you did write this that, that really caught my attention. This is a quote. Despite the number of voices in counter-public, the prevailing one was the Luminaries. To navigate the exhibition as a whole, viewers depended on a printed map and guide containing extensive explanatory statements written and edited by James McAnally, which represented a missed opportunity to invite other perspectives in the fold. There were no descriptions of the host venues or their owners, nor was there any clear document of the voice of the exhibition's curator, the remarkable artist Catherine Simone Reynolds. This was problematic in itself, but all the more given that she was the only person of color among the project's leadership and that so much of the work on view concerned the erasure of histories and the danger of hegemonic narratives. And that's the end quote. A lot of people in St. Louis talk these days about wanting people of color's voices to be front and center. I'm wondering, is that happening in reality in the art scene, or are we still at a point of talking about how we want to do it as opposed to actually handing over the microphone? Well, you just really got to the key questions here, Sarah. It's amazing. Thank you. (laughs) Um, No, this is huge. And I I think this has been sort of a fomenting question, especially, as I mentioned, since Mike Brown. But this idea of um, activism in the arts not simply being um, relegated to what exhibitions and artists are featured, but actually looking into institutional um, change. So who are the, who is the leadership? Um, How are the boards composed? Um, uh, So the idea that black voices aren't simply, um, or voices of color at all are being uh, relegated to the galleries, um, but actually are part of the, um, the, I guess what would be the, the systems of power that are governing these spaces. So I, I think, you know, it is one thing, and I certainly, part of this was a, a lot of soul-seeking myself, um, having worked at, again, at Fort Gondo and um, thought about this whole idea of um, nonprofit alternative art spaces as being so much about giving, um, quote-unquote, marginalized vo- voices exposure, um, which at one point I think felt like a positive thing to do or helpful thing to do. And then you really have to then look and think, I, I, you know, maybe this is not supposed to be me, Uh, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. actually it's about who the leadership and and who the curator should be. And, um, and I, I think that it's something that is very much on people's minds right now is, um, not only who's being displayed, but how they're being displayed and how they're being articulated. And it's a big question. Um, and I think it takes, um, an enormous amount of bravery and, soul searching again to rectify this issue. Um, But you can see it all over a lot of the conversations that have been happening, especially since this spring. Um, There have been massive institutional upheavals um, at most of the major museums interrogating this very issue. My guest today is Jessica Barron. She's recently won an Andy Warhol Arts Writers Grant, and she covers both the St. Louis art scene as well as uh, the scene in other cities here in the Midwest. Um, Jessica, I'm wondering, did you pitch the foundation on a particular project, um, or was it more just anything you want to write about once you get this grant? 
No, I I did pitch to them specifically to write about St. Louis in the Midwest. It, it's something that um, <laughs> I I can't tell if this is something that's a positive story or one that sort of um, uh, makes me makes me look like a quasi failure. But but I have <laughs> I have I have applied Do for tell. this grant. You, you, caught <laughs> my, you caught my attention with that, Leiden. <laughs> I'm sure it's, I, I can, I can surely say it's both, but I have applied for this grant five times over the course of basically a decade. And I, and I, I have always pitched writing about St. Louis, but I think this particular year um, was different because I, I think that we, again, we've come on the heels of a massive renewed civil rights movement that has largely been fomented by actions that have taken place in Midwestern cities, such as St. Louis. And of course, this spring in Minneapolis, um, radiating out to people again, looking at cities like Tulsa, where the Tulsa massacre occurred. But all of this has a lot of impact on the arts culture. And I I think it's no accident, too, when you look at a for instance, a critically praised book like Walter Johnson's The Broken Heart of America that came out recently, that Mm -hmm. the final chapter of that book literally ends on seeing hope in St. Louis's art scene. And and I guess the other component of that, though, as an art writer and why I I felt like this grant is really critical, though, is it's often, St. Louis is often written about incorrectly. And I I think it's, um, you know, again, especially the national attention that we received in 2014, um, saw us miswritten, you know, people even trying to figure out how to identify Ferguson, for instance, calling Mm -hmm. it a suburb or who knows, part of St. Louis or 8 million different things that locals were like, hey, (laughs) I know exactly where that is, you know, this is so bizarre. But that frequently happens, I think, in seeing our art scene reflected. And, you know, for instance, even in Johnson's book, a lot of the references to the arts culture, um, oddly, are actually even misnamed. And, you know, it's it actually this book that is so incredibly and specifically researched, um, again, decided to couch its conclusion in the art scene, but then didn't quite get the art scene accurately. Um, uh, but I, I think that, um, yeah, I think the, the gravity of writing about this area really did shift from something where when I was initially pitching it um, years ago as something where it was more about democratizing art culture away from the coastal cultural centers, i.e. I mean, all the kind of irony of centers being on the periphery, but, you know, the L.A. and New York, um, Mm -hmm. this idea of, again, really trying to um, spread out the way in which um, arts culture uh, is given a voice. to the Midwest, to the Midwest actually becoming um, increasingly recognized as a major player, obviously, in in our entire um, uh, kind of cultural identity, you know, be Mm -hmm. it's arts culture or political culture. Um, And I I think the reality of that um, became abundantly clear, um, again, not merely with these um, two really, um, again, sort of literally culture shifting um, uh, events around Mike Brown and George Floyd's murders, but, um, also in, in Trump being elected and Mm -hmm. people suddenly looking to what they perceived as flyover country as this, again, kind of new silent majority governing, um, how our, um, politics was actually going to be, um, 
composed. So I, again, I, I sound suddenly like I'm not talking about art, but that's not the case at all. I think that that's maybe the, also the other component of this is, um, sadly arts criticism, writing about art, thinking about art is something that is one of the first things to be excised when, um, you know, newspapers, journal, uh, daily newspapers, local journals are cutting down costs and, um, they tend to continue support for, um, performing arts, of course, um, because that ends up being translated as entertainment. But visual art then um, really isn't necessarily always perceived as necessary, but I think that it is one of the most important ways that we translate these incidences and can actually look to the arts to um, be thinking through and, and rectifying some of our most critical issues. And, um, and as we're doing that, um, what do you see as your role in that? What is the role of the critic um, as, as we're trying to make sense of this world around us and the scene around us? No, it's a good question. I, I feel like um, for a long time, I almost felt like some sort of proselytizer about like the role of the art critic. I, I, I've, I've been, I've become increasingly jaded, but I, I, but I still think it's a, it's a deeply important role, which is a kind of translator actually um, between what is often perceived as a very intellectual sphere and, and one that is rightfully and necessarily so. Um, mm-hmm. Curators who work in museums, of course, have PhDs and they're doing very fine-grained research. But um, then the public sphere, of course, is on the, uh, you know, what would be considered the other end. And the critic, as a kind of um, public pundit, works to bridge that space. And I think it is incredibly important for the critic then to be helping provide language for anyone to really enter these spaces and not feel like they um, don't understand art and um, have a way to um, really connect. And, you know, I, I, I not only believe this conceptually, but I, I feel it strongly as part of even my personal narrative. I come from a very small town in Indiana. My first ways of really accessing art were about reading about it. And hmm. um, for years, I always would even when I have taught students on uh, writing art, um, kind of had the belief that like, if I can do this, you can do this. You know, I have no special knowledge. You know, I, I, I would even say I don't necessarily have expertise, um, but it's about being open to looking and um, maybe uh, being comfortable being in this space of, um, of the nonverbal, um, and I again, it's a, that's a very, very powerful space, especially now when you think about mitigating kind of uh, political tensions. Um, where can we where can we rest sometimes in things that are ambiguous? Uh, art provides that space um, hmm. and a, and provides pause and and a lot of really really good stuff. So. I, I see criticism as as doing that. I also see it as holding artists accountable. I mean, so then specifically within the field, um, I think the key too about writing criticism in the Midwest is that you know it it it, it tends to it tends to feel fragile. You know, we we really do always want to support St. Louis. We want to support the Midwest because we are overlooked, and we know that. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, we want to be taken seriously. And the only way that we can do better work and, and give ourselves that, um, that ability to, to be serious contributors, we have to accept that there will be some critical feedback. And so, and, and you know, do you the shouldn't have here, to just... Do the artists here understand that, do you think? 
Well, that's really hard. I mean, I, I think that that's part of trying to nurture more of a critical discourse. I think it can come as sort of like a a meteor out of the sky if, if it's not contextualized around more discourse. Um, so, no, it's, it is tough. I think that it, it's a real delicate balance and certainly one that frequently keeps me up at night when I write reviews. So I, 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 cause I want, it's almost sort of, again, like very much like teaching that may not again be every critic's perspective, but the idea that students and, and myself would prefer constructive criticism, of course, more so than being obviously just sort of ruthlessly lambasted, which which I think was also a very different era of criticism than what um, most writers do today. But I don't think we should be afraid of um, being held accountable in the same way that, you know, artists often even go to New York or L.A. because they will be given... Um, I guess, given the respect of being held critically accountable, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't be let off the hook here, if that also makes sense. So, Jessica, in just our final minute here today, um, you know, you've talked about that role of, of needing to hold people accountable. Let's give you a moment for just sheer boosterism. <laughs> Who, who's one artist or one space to watch right now in St. Louis? Oh, my God, Sarah, it's so hard. I mean, I just <laughs> am so thrilled with the current um, cam show, The Great mm. Rivers Biennial, I think is just simply amazing right now. Um, That's uh, Tim Robert Yoon Irving's and, work, yeah. um, you know, Tim Portlock, Rachel Yoon. And then if you also go upstairs and take a look at Yash and Quo's work in the Teen Museum Studies, I mean, I remember going to that opening and just feeling, you know, I just, I cried when <laughs> the curators even saw me. I just felt like it was really, really uh, amazing. So congrats, Khalil. Congrats, Tim. Um, congrats, Rachel and Yaoshen. Um, I, I think that, uh, yeah, those are well, amazing shows. So. That is that is quite a rave. And, and Jessica, that makes it the perfect note to end on. So Jessica Barron, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you again, Sarah, so much for having me. I really appreciate it. find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.